Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. As we left chapter 4 last week, we saw Mordecai running around in sackcloth and ashes. And you probably would be doing the same if you had understood the sense of desperation that was before the people. They, Mordecai and his people, the Jews, had received a death sentence. A death sentence. Mordecai finds himself in chapter 4 in the king's gate against the law wearing sackcloth. Esther, if you remember from last week, in an attempt to rescue him from possible punishment or maybe even embarrassment, tries to send him some clothes. He doesn't want the clothes though. He doesn't want clothes, he wants help. Mordecai asks Esther as the queen if she would be so kind as to go before the king to plead, to plead for her people, the Jews, to plead for their life. Now there's a couple things here that I, I would be negligent if I didn't bring them up. There's a couple of problems with the request. I mean, Mordecai wants Esther to go to the king because she's the queen and ask the, the king to reverse this decree and the problem is, Esther's been queen for five years. Mordecai, her cousin, adopted father as well, five years before this moment had told Esther to conceal her identity as a Jewish young lady. Now, now Mordecai wants her to just come out and reveal her identity. He wants her to go before the king and tell the king that she's Jewish. Now, if Haman finds out that she's related to Mordecai, what would that mean? I mean, Haman wants to kill Mordecai and all the Jews, and if he finds out that Esther, the queen, is related to Mordecai, what would that, happen? What would that mean? Uh, what would happen if Mordecai had, had not encouraged Esther to hide her identity? What would have happened? If Mordecai had not told Esther five years ago to hide her Jewish identity, would we even be in this place? Would we be in this place? Would the crisis have ever happened if Esther had not been instructed to conceal her identity? Second problem is this. Esther is being asked by Mordecai to go before the king, but as we heard last week, it's not that simple. You can't just walk into the king's royal court and demand the king talk to you. Archaeologists, if it helps you even see some light opened up a little bit in this. Archaeologists have excavated from a city called Persepolis. Persepolis was the ceremonial capital of the Persian Empire. It's not where Esther is, but there are several capital cities. They serve different purposes. But at Persepolis, there were some sculptures, some sculptures that were excavated that they show the Persian king sitting on a very large throne with a long scepter in his hand. And in both sculptures, they show a uh, uh, somebody, a, a soldier behind the king, holding a very large axe. <laughs> so when Esther is asked to go before the king, quite possibly she pictures the guy behind the king with the axe. 
She's not really interested in being axed. And so she's hesitant. On top of that, the king has not seen Esther, as we heard last week, in 30 days. She's not seen the king in 30 days. She's arguing, maybe I'm not the best mediator. On top of that, I really don't know that I want to be axed. Now, Esther, what happens here is she hesitates, as you and I may have hesitated. In agreeing before, to go for the king, she has some pause, some concern. It's not until Mordecai reminds her, as we saw last week, that if she does not go before the king to help the Jewish people, that she too might die once it's revealed that she's Jewish. And so Esther agrees, as we saw in chapter 4, to go before the king, to put her life on the line, to say, literally, she said, if I perish, I perish. I'm willing to perish. But she asks Mordecai, her cousin, her adopted father, to call all the Jews in Shushan to fast and pray for her for three days. No food or drink for three days, three nights. As we said last week, this is not just a call to fasting, it's a call to fasting and prayer. You see, for a Jewish person, there are three pillars of Jewish piety. Three. Three main aspects of Jewish piety. One is almsgiving, and the other two are prayer and fasting. Matthew chapter 6 speaks to that. The focus for a Jew on giving, prayer, and fasting. It was the Lord Jesus who, when he was talking about miraculous mountain-moving moments, had said to the, Jew, to, said to the disciples in Matthew 17... Howbeit this kind of miraculous moment, this kind, goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Fasting was key. And if Esther wanted to have a mountain-moving kind of a moment, she needed the fasting and prayer of her people. And that's why she called them to fast for three days. The questions leaving chapter 4, and by the way, that's how chapter 4 ended. Mordecai went and told the Jews to fast. The questions at the end of chapter 4 last week are, what's going to come out of this three-day fast? Will Esther have the courage? She seems hesitant. Will she have the courage to go before the king? And when she does, if she does, what will the king do? Will she be introduced to the guy with the axe? What's going to happen? As we left chapter 4, the tension was building. As we move into chapter 5, it's still building, and Chapter 5 tells us that the third day of the fast is upon us. And here it is in chapter 5 that we find three different ways, three different moments in this passage. Three different scenes, if you will, in this passage. The first one is this. Scene number one in chapter 5 is we find Queen Esther in the king's court. Queen Esther in the king's court. Now stay with me and look at, look at me at chapter 5 and verse 1. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the, the gate of the house. And here it is, right? Here's the moment that we've been waiting for. If this was a sports game in a sports arena, the crowd would be silent. You'd be able to hear a pin drop. The queen is on that third day, dressed in her royal apparel. She's standing now in the inner court of the king. Probably an intimidating moment. She probably sees the guy with the axe. The most powerful man in the world is sitting on his big throne. He's got his long scepter in his hand. Verse 2 tells us, and it was so. 
When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. And we're back in our sports arena. The crowd goes wild, right? This is what we hoped would happen. The king sees her and she obtains favor. Now, I don't know what this means. I don't know if she looked stunningly gorgeous in her royal apparel. Or if the king thought, oh, there's my wife that I've not seen in 30 days. Either way, he holds out that scepter. Approving her approach to the throne. Esther walks forward in humble submission, touches the top of the scepter, which is an indication of her submission and reverence to the king. And verse 3 tells us this, Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to half of the kingdom. I mean, guys, this could not be going any better. Right? we got a serious crisis. we got a hesitant queen who's received to the throne. And that on top of that, the king says, tell me what you need. I'll give it to you. I'm up to half of the kingdom. And truth is, three days ago, Mordecai was in the middle of the city, weeping and crying. He's pleading for Esther to mediate. She's afraid for her life, but then she agrees. People are fasting and praying. And no doubt the Jews in, in Shushan... New hates the third day. This is the day that Esther's probably going to go before the king. They're wondering. They're waiting with bated breath and anticipation. There's anxiety and fear and trepidation. What's the king going to do? And this is what is offered to Esther. What's your request? Whatever you want, I'll give it to you up to half the kingdom. And really, Esther doesn't need half the kingdom. She just wants her people to live. Now surely, surely the next lines to the king are going to be, Haman wants to kill the Jews and I'm a Jew, so please stop him. Right? Surely that's what's next. Notice verse 4. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. What? Are you kidding me? The Jewish people have been told they're going to be exterminated. They requested the help of the Jewish queen. And this is what she wants to do? I mean, you want them to go to a banquet and eat when people are about to die? On top of that, the king and the man that wants to kill the Jews. Haman is invited to the banquet. Now, as we look at this, Some should rightly ask, is Esther stalling? You know, like stalling, trying to like think, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? And so I just throw something out. Is she afraid to tell the king what's going on behind his back? Or does she have some other kind of master plan? Well, let's find out. Let's move to the second scene. Scene one was the queen in the king's court. Second scene in chapter five is... King Ahasuerus at the queen's feast. Verse 5 tells us, Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? 
and it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Now you don't really need much explanation from me about what's going on here. The king hears Esther's request. He sends for Haman. They go to the banquet. The king thinks that Esther's going to share her request with him finally. I mean, this is why we came to the banquet. He's got, she's got the perfect audience. we got the king who's got all power to stop what's going on with the Jewish people. we got the man who's guilty of trying to kill the Jewish people. I mean, they're right there in front of Esther. And so he then again makes the same promise. What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. What is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. And here we again find ourselves hoping that Esther's going to step up and be straight to the point, right? I mean, a crisis is a crisis. There's no time to dance around this. So what's Esther going to do? Look at verse 7. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to pour forth my request... Let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do it tomorrow, as the king has said. You have got to be kidding me. we got to wait one more day? I mean, people have been fasting and praying, and this is your idea, Esther? Now, for people like me, who are greatly impatient, this is rather frustrating to follow. I'm not seeing the logic in this. And you, you might be sitting there going, it's not a big deal, Pastor, because you know the end of the story. You know the end of the story. But imagine living this moment. Imagine being in the middle of crisis and the person that you're putting your hope in is delaying it. I mean, somebody just needs to fix this. I don't know about you, but I always love a good feast. <laughs> but not when people are about to die. So let's move to the third scene. Chapter 5 is unique because it doesn't really give us closure on much of anything. Look at verse 3. We find, or verse 9, the third, the third scene is Haman from, his, from the feast. To his house. So the feast ends with the promise of Esther inviting the king and Haman to another feast the next day. Sounds like a good time to me. <laughs> Verse 9 Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Now, Haman's on cloud nine here, right? I mean, his career is like fast-tracking him to the top. I mean, he is moving up like you wouldn't believe. And what second-in-command would not be happy? I mean, he's been invited to a feast, surprise feast, with just the king and the queen, not one time. Not one day, but two days. But then he passes. Now you got to follow this because we're going to look at some application from this in a moment. He passes by Mordecai, who won't stand 
up out of respect, who won't move out of the way. And Haman in this moment is reminded once again why he even wants to take all the people of the Jews out. But he refrains himself, we find. Why, why, why act on this right now? I mean, you are the second most powerful man in the world. The king loves you. Seems like the queen is on your side. She's inviting you to these feasts. There's no reason to do anything to Mordecai right now. His time's coming. He goes home. Haman goes home. And he calls for his friends and his wife. Because Haman has this incredible need to impress people. Look at verse 11. And Haman told them, his friends and his wife, told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. I mean, I'm not sure if it's the first time they heard this, and it's not. Haman really likes to talk about himself. Right? He's telling them, look at all my riches. Look at the blessing of my children. I got money. I got family. And now I've been promoted. I'm advanced above the princes and the servants. There ain't nobody more powerful than Haman other than the king. Then, verse 12, Haman said, Moreover, Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. Now, I don't know how you feel, but remember in chapter 1 where Ahasuerus was trying to impress us? With all of his riches? Well, now we got Haman, right? Like he's dying to impress people. Nobody came into this feast but the king and me. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king? Same thing. You all, are you impressed with Haman yet? Verse 13. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. The money, the prestige, the power. For Haman, wasn't enough. Because there's a man in the king's gate sitting when he should be standing. There's a man in the king's gate who's disrespecting Haman. And as long as he's there in that moment, Haman is feeling disrespected and insignificant. And really a man like Haman desperately needs his wife and friends to do what they're about to do. Look at verse 14. Then said Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends unto him. They all speak. I've got an idea for you, Haman. Let a gallows be made of 50 cubits high. And tomorrow, speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. That's the end of chapter 5. Now, if we step back for a moment and we are intellectually honest about what we've seen today, we probably can say fairly, without knowing anything else coming behind this, Esther should have acted, right? She should have acted. I mean, this whole three-day fast of hers was for nothing. It seems like her cousin is going to be hung. Gallows have been made for him. Satan's going to win part of the battle. And the chapter ends. The chapter ends 
with Haman, his wife and friends, some gallows to be made, and Esther's cousin is going to be hung tomorrow morning once the king approves it. And then they're going to dance merrily off to the feast. Reminds me a little bit of the end of chapter 3 when they determined the Jews were going to be killed and then they drank and celebrated. There's no care for life. Let's ask ourselves, though, what have we seen? What have we seen? We have seen what appears to be a great moment for Esther and a possible life-saving victory for God's kingdom. And his people actually seem like maybe a missed opportunity. Esther's delay may have caused her cousin and her adopted father his life. But in the midst of this, and by the way, you have to come back next Sunday and get a glimpse of what happens next. But in the glimpse of this, in, 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 the, in the picture that we find here in chapter 5, we actually get a great glimpse into four very important themes in Scripture. They're here for us in this passage. We've got to mind for them a little bit. We've got to think about it a little bit. But these are themes that we find all throughout the Bible. And they build on each other. I want to present them to you. The first theme that I want you to see today in chapter 5, in this kind of cliffhanger passage, that we don't know what's going to happen, it seems like a lot of loose ends, we find, first off, we find this word, identity. Identity. Now, you got to follow me here for a moment. This is important to note. Because five years before this moment, as I mentioned in the introduction, five years before this moment, Esther had a real identity crisis. In many parts, it was because cousin Mordecai also had an identity crisis. So she goes into the palace as a young teenage girl with an identity crisis. For five years, Esther withholds her true identity. And as I mentioned to you, now, now Mordecai wants her to reveal her identity. But I need you to understand something that happens here. In chapter 4, in chapter 4, Esther agreed to live out her true identity. We didn't talk about it last week, but she agreed to. It was not until then, in cha- then in chapter 5, that we find her called something for the first time. In verse number 3, the king says, Queen Esther. Queen Esther. Now bear with me. It is not until after Esther embraces who she is as a child of God's covenant with Israel. It is not until then that she finds herself walking in her real identity. Her truest identity, her truest self, was not as queen. Her truest self was as a child of God. Now let's be very real here. Esther was only queen because of God's providence. She wasn't born into royalty. And apart from God's working through terrible circumstances, Esther would have never been in this position. So in chapter 4, when Esther identified with God's people and she puts her life at risk, she at the same time is personally transformed to be the queen, a woman of dignity, courage, and power. And she did not become queen by simply grabbing a hold of it. God honored her walking in her identity as his child and blessed her role as queen. Now, here's why this matters. 
because the world tells us to embrace who we ultimately want to be. It says crazy things like, speak truth into existence. Speak your reality and walk into it. That's not scriptural. That's not scriptural. And your identity is not your identity simply because you state it to be true. Identity is your truest sense of who you think you are. Remember in chapter 4? Esther didn't think very highly of herself. At the same time, identity is who you, who's, is often who someone else tells you to be. But the Christian knows this, very central to the conversation about identity. A Christian's, is, the Christian is to firmly remind themselves that their truest self is not in who they want to be, but in who they are in Christ. And then the Christian allows Christ to bring about their ultimate purpose and destiny. Let me give you a scriptural picture of this. John chapter 1. We find these words in verse 12. But as many as, have, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become who you really are. What is that? To become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You weren't born into this identity. You didn't get this by your family. You didn't get this by making it happen in yourself. You didn't get it by somebody else giving it to you, some other person giving it to you. You received this identity by God. This is your truest self. So I want to say to you this morning, as you look at Esther and you go, here's a young lady in identity crisis. For many reasons, she becomes who God had put her in that moment to be after she embraced who God already made her to be. And you and I need to understand that if we want to be something in life, that the first step is not to name it, claim it, to not speak it into existence, but to walk in our new identity as God's sons and daughters. That's your first identity, friends. You want to make a difference in the world? Live in your identity. You want to change the world? Rest in the one who has already changed the world. You want to live out your truest self? Live out of the one who has made you and now remade you in his finished work, in Christ's finished work. This conversation of identity gets hijacked. Christians have to be firm here. We have to be firm here. We are who we are as the people of God in Christ. That's our fundamental identity. But as, at the same time, as we think about Esther, the book of Esther, and I've argued now, this is the seventh week, that I'm telling you that this is a cosmic battle between two kingdoms. You need to understand how the two kingdoms speak about identity. Bear with me. The kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Satan, in the conversation about identity, says it like this. Be who you are, no matter the cost. Be who you think you are. And if nobody else likes it, their fault you be the queen that you are. But the Christian living out of God's kingdom finds the conversation of identity based in this. 
Be who Jesus made you to be because he paid the cost. That's the Christian's conversation on identity. Satan's kingdom says, you be who you think you are. Jesus' kingdom says, you be who Jesus made you to be. I don't need the bondage of trying to be a king. I have the freedom to be who I am in Christ. And that's liberating. That's liberating. We put so much pressure on our kids to go be something. If you want your child to be something, you want your grandchild to be something, teach them who they are in Jesus. And let Jesus use them. I appreciate this perspective on identity. Let me give you these comparisons, these kingdom comparisons. I hope you're with me. The world tells you to achieve your identity. The world tells you to achieve your identity. You go out and you be you. You figure it out and you be you. Jesus calls you to receive your identity. The pressure is off you. Friends, the pressure is off you and your kids and your grandkids to go achieve your identity. John 1 tells us that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. You don't achieve your identity, you receive it in Christ. That's the gospel. Well, let me take it a little farther. We doing okay? Great. Me and Josh are. Second key word of this. The second key word in Esther 5 is the word idolatry. We got identity and we got idolatry. When it comes to idolatry, let me speak to this for a moment. Stay with me, please. Just got a few minutes left. Ian DeGuid said it like this. He said, Haman is a case study in what happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged. I want you to think about that. you got to think deeply. Haman is a case study in, in what happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged. You say, what is Haman's idol? Well, it's a combination. It might not be your idol, but it, it's a combination of, of significance and being seen as significance. You see, Haman's entire world revolves around a very fragile ego. It's a very fragile ego. When he's at the feast, he's significant. When he sees Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai, he was, he's now insignificant. When he goes home and he sees his, his wife and kids and tells them how awesome he is, he's significant until he remembers there's a guy in the king's gate and I don't, I'm not going to be happy until he's gone. Now he's insignificant. You see, this is the battle of idolatry. I demand honor. I demand significance. I demand you recognize me. I, and really, that might not be your battle, but it might be that your battle of idolatry is when my career is going well, I'm good. When my bank account is where it needs to be, I'm good. When I get my stimulus check, I'm good. Some of y'all were excited this week about that stimmy. And your whole framework of life changed. You see, the, the, the issue here is when Haman is doing well, he's happy. And when he's, being, when he's not being respected, he's angry. His need for significance, success, honor drives every single decision and emotion. Listen to me very carefully. Please stay with me. If I may be an, an encouraging pastor for a moment. We do real good work in our hearts, surgical work in our hearts, 
when we ask ourselves honest questions like this. What drives me every day? What is it that if it's going well, I'm happy? And if it's not going well, my day is ruined. It might be in answering those questions, you can discover what your idol is. You can discover what your idol is. The truth is the idolatry of significance for Haman is never satisfied. In fact, an entire people group have to be slaughtered for Haman to be satisfied. We do seriously destructive work by bowing before our idols. So we see two pieces here. A battle of identity. A battle of idolatry. I want you to see the third word. I'm going to move quickly here. Identity and significance come to a head as we think about this word, kingdom. Kingdom. Identity, idolatry, kingdom. The whole struggle for Esther and Mordecai and Haman is answered in this question. For which kingdom will I live? Listen to me very carefully. You've got to track this. This is a biblical pattern. As Esther chooses God's kingdom, she, is tru- she truly finds her purpose in life. In chapter 4, she chose God's kingdom. In chapter 5, she walked into her purpose. She finds that God is orchestrating her life for a greater purpose than she could ever imagine. So she finds, listen, she finds her fullest identity and deepest significance in God. And we too can find that when we embrace God's kingdom, we were made for this moment, this time, this kingdom. And what happens when we embrace the kingdom of God is our identity is God is my father, Jesus is my king, It drives our worship. It reorients our idols. Now God becomes the focus of our hearts. And when we establish our identity, instead of trying to achieve our identity, we receive it. Now God can become our idol, if I can say it like that, when it used to be we were our idol. So here's the point. This is where these three come together. When we live out of our identity and out of out of the idols of our heart, the only inevitable conclusion is I pick my kingdom as my pursuit. Now I have to live for my kingdom. Everything in life has to become about me. And boy, we're seeing this in a culture that meant everything when it comes to identity, idolatry. It is all about my kingdom, my choices, myself. Friends, When we find our identity in Christ, when we make Christ the focus of our worship, not ourselves, we can embrace his kingdom. Jesus shows us this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Father, identity, Father, if thou will, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not my my desire, my need, my idol, not my will, Father, but thine will. Be done. Your kingdom purposes be done as I walk in my identity, as I, as I allow the idols of my heart to be crucified, I can embrace God's kingdom purpose for me. So how is it? 
I got to finish this, but how is it that we find a durable identity? How is it that we embrace our identity in Christ? How is it that we deal with the idols? How is it that we live for Christ's kingdom? Well, there's got to be something, right? Here's the fourth word. Shouldn't surprise you. It would disappoint me if you're surprised, actually. The fourth word is gospel. Four very important themes in Scripture. Identity, idolatry, kingdom, gospel. See, here's the truth of this. When it comes to identity, we all have an identity crisis. When it comes to idolatry, we all have idols that we struggle with. When it comes to the conversation of kingdom, we all live for our kingdom. And so we need some good news that is not derived from within us. And that good news has to come from without outside of us or outside of us. And at the same time, it can't, my good news can't come from you and your good news can't come from me. It's got to come from somebody greater than us. You see how this works. It's got to come from outside of me, from somebody who's greater than me, who can give me what is actually good news. And that is what we call the gospel. You say, what is the gospel, Pastor? Thank you for asking. The gospel is this, listen. The one and only God who is holy made us in His image to know Him. But you and I sinned and we cut ourselves off from God. We created the identity crisis. We created the idols because we cut ourselves off from God. But here's the good news. Jesus comes to save us from that sin that separated us from our Creator. He offers us salvation through His sinless life and His in his death in our place and being raised again from the dead. This is it. It is God, man, Christ. And so the gospel calls us to response. And here's the response. You can't rescue yourself from your sins. Only Jesus can. This is the Christian gospel. That you cut yourself off from the God that made you, but yet he came to save you. And it is from that good news. Listen very carefully. Here's where it all ties together. You ready? It's from that good news. It is in the gospel that we find our identity as a child of God. It is in the gospel. It is in the gospel that we find the significance that our heart so desperately craves. Your heart craves being significant. It is in the gospel of a Savior who comes to die for his enemies that tells you Jesus gives you significance. And it is in the gospel where you and I find the strength and the motivation to live for Christ's kingdom. See how this goes? The gospel gives us all we need for identity, for the idols of our heart, and for the strength to live for God's kingdom. Many of us would be in awe if we were invited into the presence of royalty. Imagine that moment for Esther. We'd be in awe. Esther goes into the presence of the king in her grandest apparel. But listen carefully. We go into the presence of our king, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we are always welcome. We need not fear the man with the axe. We need not fear that we'll be rejected. We need not fear whether God is in a bad mood today. We need not fear if he will smile on us or if he'll find us precious. If he'll look on us with favor, we need not fear. Because Jesus Christ 
has assured all who have placed their faith in him that the king will always show his favor and kindness to us as we come into his presence. That's good news. That's good news. He's calling you today to come into his presence. You don't have to wait. You need not clean yourself up. That job was bigger than you. You simply need to come to his presence. That's the Christian gospel. That tells you that because of Christ, you are always, always welcome. Oftentimes, Christians have said things like this, clean yourself up and God will be happy for you. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus cleans you up and God is happy with you. And God is happy with you. What's my identity? Is it rooted in Christ? How about the idols of my heart? Am I trying to get something else to be for me what only God can be for me? Am I living for his kingdom or mine? The gospel reorients all three of those categories so that we can live our life in honor of our King. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, Your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.